Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for this Throwback FDNY podcast. Remember, you can listen to all of the past episodes of Throwback FDNY by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at www.nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Each show has three segments going back in time about FDNY and its history. Now let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, the Equitable Building Fire in 1912 prompts a major innovation in the FDNY. The FDNY takes on the responsibility of providing fire protection at New York's first commercial airport in 1939, and the four-day commissioner, Elmer Mustard, is appointed in 1940. The temperature in Lower Manhattan was only 18 degrees Fahrenheit on the morning of January 9, 1912, and with 40 mile an hour winds, the wind chill was far below that. At approximately 5 a.m., a fire broke out in the basement of the Equitable Life Assurance Building at 120 Broadway. Here are a few facts about the building to understand the fire conditions it created. Construction began in 1868 and was completed in 1870. It boasted the first passenger elevator in a New York office building. Built of brick, granite, and steel, it was considered fireproof. But open stairways and the elevator shafts proved fatal during the fire. When the fire broke out, it quickly spread upwards. Since it was early in the morning, there weren't too many workers present, but those that were found themselves in some untenable situations. Some fled to the roof, but others were at work in the basement where the fire began. Responding FDNY units faced hellish conditions. Well, actually the opposite. The below freezing temperature made worse by the high wind caused the water from their hoses to freeze almost instantaneously. Ice coated all the fire apparatus, the street, and the firefighters themselves. Many photographs showing this were taken during the fire and can be found online. Chief of Department John Kenlin was in command of the fire with Commissioner Joseph Johnson at his side. With 22 engines, two water towers, and 10 hook and ladder companies from Manhattan already committed to this fire, Kenlin made the unprecedented move of ordering units from Brooklyn to respond. The New York Police Department closed the Brooklyn Bridge to private vehicles, and nine engines with their hose tenders, one water tower, four hook and ladder companies, and even the searchlight unit crossed the river. A few rescue attempts, all quite dramatic and dangerous, had to be undertaken. First, workers from Cafe Saverin, where the fire started in the basement, fled to the roof of the building. Two firemen, engineer Charles Rankin and fireman Francis Blessing, both of whom would find a place in FDNY history later in their careers, employed scaling ladders, a device we've discussed in earlier podcasts, to scale the building's exterior. Although they reached the top floor, the decorative cornice protruded four feet from the top of the building, making it impossible for them to reach the trapped people on the roof. Next, fireman James Malloy of Engine Company 32 used a rope gun to send a line from a building across the street over to the Equitable to pass a heavy rope that could be used to effect an escape. But flames from the inferno below burned the rope and it was gone. Sadly, the roof soon collapsed thereafter, claiming the lives of six workers. If you have never seen a scaling ladder or a rope gun, some are on display at the New York City Fire Museum. Make sure to visit to see these unique tools. William Gilpin, president of the Mercantile Savings Deposit Company, along with some other workers, ventured into the cellar to secure the valuable holdings in a safe. 
Two of the workers eventually went up and out from the cellar, but Gilpin and two watchmen remained unable to escape. Their only way out would have been through the sidewalk-level cellar windows, but they were covered with two-inch iron security bars. Fireman James Dunn of Engine 6 and Charles Rankin again got hold of a hacksaw and began to saw the bars with little success. Luckily, engineer steamer Seneca Lark, who had pre-FDNY experience as an iron worker, gave Chief Kenlin insight into how the bars should be cut. After two hours of Herculean effort, using dozens of hacksaw blades and surviving being covered with ice and falling debris, Lark freed Gilpin and one of the workers. The other had perished before he could be rescued. A total of seven people died as a result of this fire. In addition to those who worked in the building, Battalion Chief William Walsh made the supreme sacrifice when the floor where he and his men were battling the blaze gave way and collapsed. One of those firefighters, Foreman Charles Bass of Engine Company 4, was recovered from the debris, but his injuries forced him out of the fire department and into a long-term care facility, where he lost his battle 11 months later. And in one final note, the lessons learned from this fire and rescues prompted the department to investigate the possibility of establishing a company of specially trained and equipped firefighters to be called upon in such untenable situations. That concept became a reality with the establishment of Rescue Company 1 three years later. While the Equitable Building Fire is something that those of us interested in firefighting know, most people in New York and even around the world have forgotten about it. Because just three months later, another tragedy with New York Connections struck. The sinking of the Titanic. Hello everyone. I'm Ted Grant, President of the Board of Trustees of the New York City Fire Museum. As we come to the close of another very difficult year, I want to appeal to you for your support. With your help, we have been coming back since reopening in September 2020 after our pandemic shutdown. But we are not out of the woods yet, for sure. Tourism is still far from what it used to be. School children are not taking class trips, and large groups are not holding as many meetings as before, all of which impacts our bottom line. The museum does not receive financial support from the FDNY or the FDNY Foundation. We are still struggling to keep our doors open, but make no mistake about it, as a museum for the largest fire department in the United States and the most respected in the world, we are committed to making its history available to everyone. Please help us by visiting our website and making a contribution and perhaps becoming a member. Visit www.nycfiremuseum.org and click on the support tab to show that you too want to help us preserve, educate, and celebrate the history, tradition, and fire safety programs of the FDNY. Thank you and stay safe. It's difficult to imagine life without air travel. Sure, we all know about the Wright brothers, Amelia Earhart, and all the early aviation pioneers, but flying on an airplane was not something the average person experienced in the first half of the 20th century. As flying became more accessible, commercial airfields were constructed to accommodate this new mode of transportation. For New Yorkers, that began with the opening of New York Municipal Airport, now known as LaGuardia Airport, in 1939. Our larger-than-life mayor, Fiorella LaGuardia, himself a pilot during the First World War, landed at Newark Airport after a trip in 1936 and was distressed that he could not fly directly into his city of New York. He asked the pilot to fly him over to Floyd Bennett Field down in southern Queens, where he wanted to have a commercial airport built within the city. 
but after studies into the feasibility of where a commercial airport should be established, it was decided to invest in a private airfield in North Beach, Queens. That dream came to fruition when New York Municipal Airport LaGuardia Field was unveiled on October 15, 1939, with the first flights taking off and landing that December. To protect the airport from fire in general, as well as to respond to the unthinkable event of an airplane crash, the New York City Department of Docks, which ran the airport, purchased a Diamond T crash apparatus. It was painted in the color scheme of the dock department, namely yellow and blue. But they didn't have the expertise in firefighting, so they turned to the FDNY to staff the new apparatus. To do so, members from rescue companies were detailed to airport unit number one. To say the least, the call volume was quite low, making this a rather boring assignment especially for the highly trained members of the elite rescue companies. During the Second World War, approximately between 1941 and 1946, fire protection and crash rescue responsibilities at LaGuardia Field fell to the Army, with federal firefighters assigned there utilizing three military fire apparatus. At the end of the war, when the Army turned the airport back over to New York City control, the FDNY took possession of the former military fire apparatus. On April 1st, 1946, Airport Unit Number 31 was organized as a full FDNY company. Included in their arsenal was one of the first apparatus purposefully built for aircraft firefighting. It had two separate engines, one for driving the truck and one for pumping water or foam. Just one year later, FDNY operations at LaGuardia ceased and were taken over by the Port of New York Authority, now known as the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. People often inquire why the FDNY does not provide fire protection at New York's airports. Well, that answer would take much more time than we have in this podcast. Suffice it to say that while smaller, dedicated fire services have, and in some cases still do, provide primary response in select areas of the city, including the airports, the FDNY ultimately responds to all fires and emergencies within the five boroughs. The New York City Fire Museum Shop offers a wide selection of museum souvenirs and FDNY licensed products. To acknowledge the 20th anniversary of the tragic events of September 11, 2001, and the 343 members of the FDNY who gave their lives that day, we are offering several commemorative items, including a Maltese cross decal and lapel pin, a 9-11 Memorial Challenge coin, and a beautiful high-quality 343 t-shirt. Proceeds from all sales help fulfill our mission to preserve educate, and celebrate, and to remember the brave men and women of the FDNY, not just on September 11th, but every day. You can make purchases at the museum or online by visiting our website, www.nycfiremuseum.org forward slash shop. For the first time in FDNY history, one person simultaneously held the uniform rank of chief of department and the civilian position of fire commissioner. That person, John J. McElligot, was appointed to the two roles as of January 28, 1934. McElligot joined the uniform force in 1905. He rose to the ranks, becoming chief of department on March 1, 1932. It was the irascible Mayor LaGuardia, the consummate fire buff, that wanted McElligot to act in those two roles. And because of the restrictive civil service laws, it took an act by the New York State Legislature to make it possible. But with a new pension scheme to, about to go into effect in March of 1940, McElligot approved the retirement of eight ranking members of the department, including himself, at full pay in the last days of February. Oh, and coincidentally, all eight were officers of the Fire Department Pension Fund. 
Under the new system, the pensions would be half pay unless otherwise approved by a 10-member board comprised of representatives of the Uniform Firemen's Association and the Patrolmen's Benevolent Association. LaGuardia was incensed. He learned of the move while in his car, which was equipped with a two-way radio, heading out of the city to a meeting in Huntington, Long Island. He shouted over the radio for acting mayor Newbold Morris to immediately reject the retirements. But the department orders had already been enacted. LaGuardia also ordered that Deputy Commissioner Elmer Mustard was to be appointed commissioner immediately to fill the vacancy. Born in Elgin, Ontario, Elmer J. Mustard moved to New York at the age of 19 and was a lifelong resident of the Bronx. He was appointed to the fire department on January 1, 1901, and assigned to Engine 26. His first promotion was to engineer of steamer in 1905, progressing up the ranks eventually to deputy chief. In 1937, he became deputy chief in charge, a rank replaced with that of deputy assistant chief of Brooklyn and Queens. He holds the unique distinction of being the only deputy chief in FDNY history to hold that rank at the same time as his son, Elmer Jr., but only for one month. The elder Mustard was sworn in as deputy commissioner on January 1st, 1939. With McElligot as commissioner and Mustard as his deputy, it was the first time that the highest appointed positions in the department were held by members of the uniform force. Upon his elevation to commissioner, Mayor LaGuardia ordered Mr. Mustard to rescind McElligot's move and order the men back to work under the threat of forcing the review of their retirements by the board, which could have cut their pensions in half. Commissioner Mustard did just that, declaring the retirements null and void. McElligot returned to his post as commissioner, but retired from the uniform position of chief. McElligot then appointed Patrick Walsh to be the acting chief of department until the civil service list could be generated. When tempers flared again between LaGuardia and McElligot, he retired for good, and Walsh took both positions as McElligot had done before him. Elmer Mustard was never actually sworn in as fire commissioner, so his tenure of only four days was considered an acting post. Sadly, he died just three days after resuming his position as deputy commissioner. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we'd like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. What New York City fire chief lent his name to the iconic fire prevention mascot, Smokey the Bear? The answer can be found in our last episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all previous episodes by going to www.nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you with the help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official nonprofit organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'll leave you with this important safety tip. If you're in a building that's on fire and leave a room that you're in, be sure to close the door behind you. An open door can let smoke and flames travel throughout the building, endangering the building itself and all those within. So please remember, close the door. We can all do our part to be a partner with the fire department by promoting fire safety. Thank you and be safe.